This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, Drew Dockin and Tim Prady will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. All right. Today is December 11th. We are really pleased to be joined by LPL CIO Mark Zubicki. Uh, Mark has been uh, an LPL, our partners with WealthVest, and they have been a great partner uh, for several years. Uh, Mark and I shared the stage last year at the BISA uh, conference down in Florida. We had a great conversation. So now we want to talk a little bit about uh, what the outlook is for 2024. Uh, Welcome, Mark. Welcome, Drew. And Mark, why don't we start off with just your kind of and I know you haven't published yet your outlook officially for 24, but just kind of directionally, what are you thinking? And let's let's break it down by the P and the E. What do you expect for sort of earnings growth overall? And what do you expect the multiple to do uh, over the course of the next 12 months? Sure. Fair, fair, Tim. And good to be with you. Um, so if, if we're talking about equities and the P and the E, we, we think equities are going to have a pretty good year. Um maybe slightly less than what has been a long-term average year. Um, And we can talk in more detail about this, but one of the reasons why we think they're going to have a pretty good year um, is that interest rates are actually going to come down during the course of 2024. Um, The the additional benefit um, is, in fact, on the earnings uh, side. So we think we've kind of gotten, gotten past the earnings recession that we suffered um, through in 2023, obviously inflation had a lot to to do with that. Um, and overall, I, I think you know uh, uh, corporate America did a fairly good job of managing through that inflation. But uh, we believe, despite you know um, earnings grow, or I'm sorry, despite uh, global um, economic growth being a little bit less than stellar during the course of 2024, we think earnings growth is actually going to be fairly favorable. Again, um, probably a little bit less than a long-term average growth year. Um, So the earnings is going to be a positive. um, In terms of valuations, we think that, you know, valuations are likely to stay relatively the same as they were in 2023. Um, So, so, you know, I don't know that I would expect anything more of a, a push higher in in PE multiples, so so there's that. I mean, there may be some upside to that, given the fact that the um, the Federal Reserve is not necessarily going to be a, a ta- oh, I'm sorry, a headwind as it was in 23, but more of a tailwind uh, in 2024. Okay, all right. So you're kind of looking at we're around 4,500 here. You think there's maybe certainly less than eight percent if we use that kind of as a long-term equity return number. So you're kind of mid single digits on upside, and that's going to be driven by the earnings, not by the multiple. Uh, well said, Tim. That's exactly yeah. where we are. Right. And now that's an interesting take in that, um, you know, there, there's always a good debate around is inflation good for equity multi- equities or, or is it bad, right? Higher inflation generally means lower multiples. But you're taking the side of saying, yeah, we're going to have less inflation, but multiples are maybe already discounting that. And then on the earnings growth side, you know, we have had really high nominal GDP growth. Inflation comes down, that takes down inflation. And and I and I, I don't think 
and, and maybe we can get into this, maybe you expect accelerating real GDP, but it's hard for me to get there on higher earnings when nominal GDP is slowing and we've had such a tough time growing earnings in an inflationary environment. And when I hear inflationary environment, you know, I hear I hear more pricing power. How do you how, how do you think about those thoughts? Yeah, I mean, and, and honestly, to that, that, and I think it's all fair. Um, what's been surprising to me, honestly, over the last call it 10, 15 years, if we can think about it that far back, is is the resiliency with which corporate America manages manages their balance sheet, their income statement, their cash flow statement, um, and I expect to see that resiliency. Um, in 2024. Now, if we match what we think is going to happen from an economic perspective, which we think we're going to get a mild recession here in the U.S. economically, um, it, it's not going to be long lasting. So there is going to be some pressure from um, a GDP growth perspective on the ability of corporate America to, to actually generate some notable earnings. So um, we're not expecting expecting robust earnings, so some of the earnings generation is probably going to come through cost cutting, um, and because of the state of affairs economically, and and that's likely going to help income statements overall. At least that's our position. Okay, all right. So and and that certainly has happened, right? Certainly has happened in big tech this year, where you've seen disappointing top line, but the earnings have have been there. Yeah, really a, a kind of a continuation of that theme. You know, it's interesting. Let's move to labor because there's been this concept of labor hoarding, right? That companies are probably holding on to employees too long. So do you see a situation where layoffs do, I mean, in a mild recession, I got to think you think layoffs do pick up and that is really part of the whole tailwind to corporate earnings? I, I think that's entirely correct. Yeah, we, we expect the jobs market to soften um, in an extension of that, we expect consumer spending to soften. I think if we categorize 2023 as um, above expectations in terms of the strength of consumer spending, that's probably like the last post-COVID hurrah of the consumer. Now back to kind of a normalized um, spending trend. Um, so from a year-over-year perspective, we think uh, consumer spending is not going to be is robust in 2024, and that's what going to be one of the drags on GDP for us. So, so yeah, the the, the jobs market gets a little bit messier. Uh, consumers, you know, pull in the reins a little bit. I mean, there's all you know, kind of you know, auto delinquency data, credit card delinquency data starting to rise and catch our attention a little bit. So, the consumer is going to be not quite as robust as they were in 2023. At least that's our view. Yeah. You know, I, I think the consumer call is so difficult here. Uh, I like the whole concept. I'm sure you've heard it of the K-shaped recovery, where kind of the the consumer who has savings, who owns a home, uh, they're doing quite well. But you you see all this stress at the bottom end of the economy, uh, and it is it's incredible mixed signals, right? You know, high end consumption remains so strong, and yet you see this stress at the bottom. It's one of those things. Lizanne Saunders said it the other day. Don't look at averages because averages produce average analysis. And it really is kind of too, and not to sound political, but it is a little bit two different worlds because asset holders have done so well. You've had so much accumulated wealth, 
but that accumulated wealth obviously has not been uh, has not been shared by everybody. I, I think that's entirely correct, and and you know we're getting to a time now where some of the fiscal and monetary push obviously obviously the monetary push has been pulled back, but some of the fiscal push um, we saw you know uh, post COVID. Um, is 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 starting to wane, and and I think 2024 is really going to show that development. Whereas consumers got out and they and they traveled at the peak level in 2023, um, we don't think that's repeated in, uh, next year. Yeah, Mark, you mentioned kind of the labor strength um, and and some of this fiscal spending behind it. What are your thoughts on kind of the nearshoring or the whole, you know, impetus to move supply chains away from China and the rest of the emerging world to the United States? Sure. Um, we think that is an absolute real thing. And there's a couple surveys that we can cite. Deloitte um, is one of them has taken surveys of their client base. And, and a large portion of that group is either engaging in nearshoring or reshoring now or plans to. Um, so we see a net benefit from that activity in the U.S. on in, on industrial companies um, as they as they build ad additional um, elements of production here in the U.S. So that that's that favors industrial companies, um, and it also favors um, places like Mexico. I mean, we think Mexico is probably a key winner. Um, in the in the nearshoring trend. So for those folks who don't want to bring, call it Asia-Pacific production, back directly on U.S. shores, they'll have to bring it relatively close where they can manage the supply chain a little bit better. Mexico, we think, is likely one of those destinations. Um, over and above any other destination you may think that would be an option for, for U.S. manufacturers. And Mark, we were talking a little bit before we started. That leads you to what view towards industrials? We are neutral on industrials today, Tim. I mean, we've we've been overweight industrials for a significant significant period of time, um, but we've moved to neutral here just recently because some of the momentum has come out of that sector a little bit, um, and and we raised our outlook for um, communication services because momentum is starting to build there. And and because we manage, you know, money and and um, the dollar is finite, we had to move to neutral on industrials to make the move to increase our, our communication services outlook. Yeah, it's interesting when you look at the dynamics behind industrials right now, because you do see backlogs coming down a lot. You have order books coming down. I thought what you saw with Deere the other day with their meaningfully lowered guidance was an interesting kind of microcosm of what we could be seeing on the industrial side. Uh, yep. You know, when, when we talk about nearshoring and uh, friendshoring and all that, we talk about, we look a lot at the growing levels of protectionism that you have very much protected markets. You know, you look at China dumping cheap electric cars into Germany. Well, what it, the Germans are going to protect the auto industry, right? And it's happening. So it's like somebody stands in front of you at a baseball game. You have to stand up. It, it, this this protectionism seems to beget more protectionism. We've got a chart in the slide deck that really shows protectionist measures, tariff measures that are up and to the right. So I suppose you think that long term, that'll be a positive for U.S. industry, 
but maybe that already is fully priced into these stocks. They're, they're trading at pretty good multiples on what look like pretty robust earnings. Yeah, I, I think industrials did get that tailwind in 2023 from that concept that you're mentioning. Um, um, and a lot of that probably has priced in. Not that we don't think industrials over the next several years are going to recognize a general tailwind um, from the, the nearshoring and reshoring trend. Um, but we would probably look at industrials as we look into 2024 uh, as one of those industries that's likely to suffer a little bit if we do get a mild recession, um, a, a cyclical group, as we all know. So, yeah, I, I just think the, the 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 major bloom has come off that rose, at least in the near term, the way we think about it tactically. And with the weakening dollar, uh, do you think that could be a boon for emerging markets coming into this year, or is the outlook negative on that? Uh, yeah, I mean, we don't think the dollar is likely going to um, go through 2024 as a as a weak currency. Um, and the reason we say that is is what we do get in in terms of a mild recession in 2024 here in the U.S. is probably going to be a little bit more than mild in in Europe, for example. Um, so we we still think we're going to get relative dollar strength. Um, but probably not as robust as we as we've seen call it over the last you know 18 months or so. Uh, in terms of um, the dollar weakness that we are seeing currently and our outlook on emerging markets, yes, it's a general positive for emerging markets. But if I look back over the last 15 years, uh, a, a tactical emerging markets call is a hard one to make. Um, sometimes you you're good for a month and then you're and you're terrible for the next two months. So my personal view over the over the last 15 years is until people figure out where the bottom is in China, what the real GDP trend is, you know, you know what they're doing from a, a geopolitical perspective across the globe. I, I just think emerging markets is a tough trade. Um, so we rarely. We are rarely overweight emerging markets because we're not a trading operation here. We're we're an asset allocator, and allocating assets to emerging markets has been a hard thing to do. And we don't think that gets any better anytime, you know, real soon. And and the and the 800 pound gorilla is is in fact China in that call. Man, I I could not agree more on that. I mean, you talk about a black box that is China and one that really feels like it's imploding. I mean, we all lived through the great financial crisis. We all saw what happened to an economy that becomes over levered to housing. And when you look at the GFC in the United States and, and Western Europe and Australia, and you compare that to the housing crisis that they are going through in China, it just looks like you have a bubble that is going to take a long long time to disinflate. And 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 I think your thoughts about trying to pick a time to buy EM, hell, you can't make money in small caps and mid caps in the United States. Why do you think people are going to go out the risk curve and want to buy emerging markets? Yeah. Yeah. No, and, and spot on, Tim. And just to, to take that a little bit further, I think, you know, for it's not that we're allocating no exposure to EM because we have some exposure in our general asset allocation models, both tactically and strategically, obviously. Um, but while you're engaging in EM exposure, 
Uh, the right thing to do is probably do it with an active manager um, because, you know, yeah. just being an asset allocator and trying to do it with um, an ETF is probably the exact wrong thing to do. Um, at least active managers, you know, may or may not be on the ground, but they have the ability to kind of dissect the the country exposures a little bit better, digest or dissect the um, the industry exposures a little bit better, and you may get a benefit from that. Man, I, I think that I, I think that is sound advice. But and you touched on a theme that is a theme that I'm trying to understand better which is, you know, kind of passive flows, index flows, and how that may be creating some distortion with the markets, right? Every day, you can't watch CNBC for half an hour without some reference to the MAG7 and, you know, where all the performance is really in mega caps. Do you, do you give that kind of concept any, any thought that maybe index flows, passive flows are creating some distortions in valuations and very much be benefiting mega caps? versus everything else yeah i think there's no question about that tim uh, you know the i think you know if we look back at our careers here um maybe you and i look at our careers as you know, yeah, managing like money too <laughs> managing money is never easy but um it's gotten more difficult it's got increasingly difficult because of the the um the uptake of etfs and the amount of momentum that exists today in, in this market yeah. um, and the high frequency trading that exists in this market. So um, and you have to really manage your time horizons accordingly. If you're a retail investor, um, you're likely not going to be able to trade as fast as the high frequency traders. Right. So you have to so you have to align your tactical time horizon with something that actually can can work for you. Um, so my view there is, is that, you know, relative to where we were maybe 10 years ago, I think as an investor, and this is hard to do, is I think you have to take less risk in this market than you did, say, 10 years ago. And the reason for that is, is given the way that the, this market trades and the speed with which it trades, we could be down 10% in a week. Um, and that's a little bit of a scary outcome for folks. So to buffer against that potential outcome and, and, and those, those outcomes are typically um, news to everybody when they do happen, um, you just have to take a little bit less risk in portfolios, I think, in, in general terms is the way I look at it. Yeah, I, I, no, I think that's well said. You know, it's, you know, it's always been escalator up and elevator down. But to the degree that all of these passive and index strategies um, can move at the same time, I do think that you're right. You know, I I, I use the the expression, you know, are, are we losing the wisdom, the inherent wisdom of markets to the madness of crowds? And all of a sudden, you know, you get some real weak economic data, you get some recessionary data, all of a sudden, you know, there's recommendations to change 401k allocations or you, you get layoffs and and you could just have a real mechanical adjustment. And what worries me is that you have so many hedge funds now that are really trying to anticipate those flows, front running those flows. Yeah. You know, a, a good example of it is Uber, right? It became clear there somewhere in the middle of the third quarter that Uber was going to put up a, uh, a positive earnings quarter that would make two in a row. 
that would that would increase the possibility or 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 increase any possibility of S and P inclusion. And the stock was up almost fifty percent in just a couple of weeks. Uh, and and those passive buyers are not buying it at down. You know they're buying it after that fifty percent move. So the the index money, the passive money, has become so so supreme. Uh, that you're starting to see more and more active strategies that all they're trying to do is game what the uh, passive might do. And I think you're right. I think that you're going to see no volatility, no volatility, no volatility. Uh-oh. Yes. Yeah. And and you just have to account for that. And, and, yeah. and because we can't, um, as asset allocators, beat the high-frequency traders at their game, nor are we trying – um, you just have to um, typically lengthen your tactical time horizon in terms of the way you are managing your assets. Specifically, especially if you're if you're a, a retail investor and you're managing this on your own, sure. um, you gotta you gotta just and it's hard to do from a behavioral perspective, right? You have to set aside the news um, and just be supremely focused on controlling what you can control. And a lot of that time um, should be spent on setting aside the bad news, setting aside the, the the typical daily news flow, and just sticking to an asset allocation, um, you know, systematically, and and um, not getting caught up in the day to day. Yeah, it's what everybody should do, and few are capable of it. That's right. And that's not and that, that I could say that probably for all of us, right? I mean, we all, you all, we always succumb to the noise, the 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 the, the most recent piece of data. We do. Why don't we Why don't we talk a little bit about the Fed? So uh, markets have rallied here. Bonds have rallied. I, I, I always say I've never seen a market where a single factor, that factor being the ten year, was more determinant of what equities were going to do that day. Uh, and obviously, bonds are starting to anticipate a Fed that is going to be uh, cutting in 2024. We're now pricing in, I think last I saw, about a three-quarters chance of a Fed cut in March. And that happened all of a sudden. So do you, how, how do you see the Fed uh, behaving in 24? And do you think that the markets are ahead of themselves with that expectation? Yeah, um, the, Tim, I think the markets are a little bit ahead of themselves as they tend to get ahead of themselves. We just touched on a little bit of that. Um, but we do think the Federal Reserve is likely going to reduce interest rates in 2024, could be as much as 100 basis points-ish. Um, and But that's likely not going to occur in until we think about mid-year, not necessarily March. So some of the upside that we've seen in the bond market and some of the upside that we, we've seen in the equity market is, is probably going to be given back a little bit as, as those expectations are right-sized. So maybe the, what is now the March expectation for a Fed rate cut, you know, after the market corrects a little bit, um, goes back to maybe a June expectation, which we think is, is, is rightly positioned. So, um, our general, you know, kind of benchmark base case is that we we do think we're going to get a mild recession. That's going to, you know, put the Fed back to work in terms of reducing interest rates, and and we may get into it in this conversation, Tim. I, you know, I don't know that the U.S. government's um, balance sheet can take um, a Fed funds rate where we are today, or interest rates at, at, at levels that we are today. Um, and I think that's probably going to be part of the impetus of the Federal Reserve. 
Um, and we maybe maybe it's for this conversation, or maybe it's for another one, and we can talk about whether the Federal Reserve is in fact an independent body or not. But we'll, well, that's a long conversation. Um, so, but yeah, uh, I think we're going to see a Federal Reserve that's going to provide us a little bit of a tailwind as opposed to a headwind in 2024. We often talk about directional change around here. Um, and the directional change from the Fed is going to be positive where it was a negative last year. Yeah, it's a super interesting point. I don't know if the Fed is independent. I know the Treasury isn't independent. And when you <laughs> look at the move that we've had here, uh, you know, we wrote an essay at the very beginning of, of November that said, what is QRA and why, why does everybody care about it all of a sudden? And, you know, you saw what Yellen did. She She moved issuance to bills. And, you know, we have an arguably inexhaustible ability to absorb bills. This week is going to be interesting, though, because I think we have a 10-year and we have a 30-year auction on Tuesday, if I'm not mistaken. Do you make much of the concerns around supply and especially supply of duration? Uh, and, 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 and look, to your point, let's say the Fed does make the, the, you know, they won't say it out loud, but they do say, I'm sure, uh, over a glass of wine, hey, is can we hold rates up here? Like this is this is really tough um, for our for 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 cost of capital for, for yeah. a country that has been printing money for a while. It, it does the market sniff that out though, and you get a big steepener. You could, could end up with a bear steepener where the long end gets away from itself because people look at the Fed and they say, you know what, they ought to be tighter. They're not tighter. I mean, uh, uh, they ought to be. Yeah, tighter. They're not tighter. And the reason is, is because of these long term debt issues. And therefore, there is risk that they let inflation get away from them. Yeah, I, I so all good questions. And I'll, I'll just try to answer that by stating what we think. So given our outlook for the economy coming under some semblance of a pressure, we think Treasury demand and we are actually concerned about Treasury supply, um, really concerned about Treasury supply, but we think the fact that Treasury is still the safe haven asset above all else. Um, and when we get into an economic headwind and some uncertainty, call it political, call it geopolitical, whatever it is, um, there is still going to be that safe haven demand from from Treasury. So that's going to um, eat up some type of some of the supply, you know, out there, um, and we and we're not concerned necessarily at this point of foreign buyers stepping away dramatically from the from the treasury market. So um, I don't know that a a bear steepener is is our base case, but there is risk based on the the amount of supply that we're going to see of that. Um, in general terms, I think. We are going to get a Federal Reserve that over that glass of wine, Tim, realizes that they've got a problem. Yeah. Um, and and consequently, and I'm going to guess that they knew this already, they can't stay at the levels that they are now um, and have the U.S. government continue to easily fund itself. Um, there's just going to be too much pressure in Washington for that to occur. So. So we think bonds um, are going to be 
Um, very attractive in 2024. They're attractive now when they're likely to have a good year. Obviously, over the last two years, they've been historically bad, but we think that cleans itself up in 24. Yeah. You know, it, it, it is two things can be true. We have this incredible political uh, or governmental incompetence in the United States. We're running these irresponsible deficits. Say what you want. All the, all the bad things that you can say. It doesn't change the fact that the United States is the global reserve currency. It is the flight to safety asset. If you're anywhere in the world and, you know, whatever hits the fan, uh, where do you want to hold your assets? You're going to want to hold them in a in a in a T-bill, right? A U.S. Yep. dollar denominated T-bill. I couldn't agree more. But let, let's talk then about a little bit about that governmental incompetence. Do you do, are you concerned uh, that we continue to have uh, a Congress and uh, 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 federal lawmakers that really can't shoot straight. And we end up with these endless $2 trillion type deficits uh, that that do make people more concerned. And maybe maybe it's it's a positive for gold. Or, or, or how do you think about what are the implications of the deficits that we continue to run and the inability to either do one thing or the other, cut spending, or increase revenues, it doesn't seem like we're capable of doing either. Yeah, I, that that is a real concern for us, Tim. I mean, I you know, and it's unfortunately, it's it's one of those things that it's not going to be a problem until it's a problem, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. It was, I mean, you know, and and this is a little bit of a, a reach here, but I mean, I you know, it's kind of like Greece. I mean, we're nowhere near Greece, but let's yeah. just use Greece as an example. Yeah. It wasn't a problem until it was a problem. Um, and um, I'm I'm hoping that um, there's some rational thinking um, amongst the members of Congress and and maybe some level of austerity that takes hold. And I think we're starting to see that just a little bit that we can't endlessly spend and spend and spend not only here in the U.S., but um, outside of the U.S. and, and hope to uh, get anywhere near a balanced budget. Um, so that is a, a huge concern for us. And we talked a little bit about um, taking less risk in this market as a result of the speed with which this market trades. We think you need to take a little bit less risk in this market because political risk is is an increasingly real thing um, here in the U.S. and it's increasingly real across the globe. And I think for if you're an asset allocator um, or a retail investor, I think you have to account for that. Um, you have to take you know less risk. And 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 honestly, I don't know that this becomes a problem, Tim, in your lifetime or mine. Um, but in, in, until we get some rational thinking in Washington, it's going to be a problem at some point. Yeah. No, I think that's well said. Anything else, Drew? No, I mean, I just think off that point, you know, you had Jamie Dimon talk about how political risk is the biggest um, issue that we face above inflation, above everything else. And I think we're seeing that manifest, uh, you know, not just stateside, but. Venezuela now is an issue. The Middle East, Ukraine, and Russia remains unabated. So it seems like there's always a lot of storm clouds. But yeah, yeah, maybe increasingly post Pax Americana, as they say. Well, Mark, this was awesome. Uh, we went 30 minutes here. I think this was really great. I look forward to reading your uh, 24 outlook when it publishes. I think this week. 
And I'll look forward to seeing you uh, at the next conference uh, uh, in March. Yeah, Tim, uh, certainly enjoyed being with you. Nice to see you. All right. Thanks, everyone. That'll do it. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WellFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WellFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WellFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WellFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked to any of the contents. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Investment and investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal.